Welcome to our podcast from The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture and other topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter Tara O'Connor, the Managing Director of ARC, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from Europe. We both live, breathe and work African affairs and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, good to connect again. Very good to chat to you, Karen. We've been very non-specific because I know you're travelling through Europe at the moment as we record this. In contrast, here in South Africa uh, and in Johannesburg in particular, we're faced with a very sober reminder that we can't travel around. COVID-19 is really taking its toll. We're in lockdown level four because we're at the peak of a third wave. It basically means no booze, early to bed, and many businesses and schools, of course, closed. Less than 5% of the population have been vaccinated so far, Tara, so it feels very worrying. And really all the signs are that the infection rates are higher now than they were during the second wave. And yes, it's very, it's again very sobering. You know, I am traveling because I'm able to, because we've had double vaccination. Uh, you know, the vaccine rollout has been so effective. But I got very sad news uh, last week that a former employee of mine was has actually succumbed to the disease. So it's uh, this third wave is really taking its toll, including on young people, it seems. Well, moving on, uh, the big story here in South Africa, Tara, is that former President Jacob Zuma has been convicted by the Constitutional Court for being in contempt of court for failing to comply with the State Capture Commission, which is investigating, as you know, grand corruption. Obviously, his conviction does give us the opportunity to delve into some of the wider governance challenges facing South Africa with our guest a little bit later on. But first, let's take a look at some of the main stories in the news since we last spoke. Hello and welcome to BBC News. In the past few hours, it's been announced that South Africa's top court has sentenced the former president, Jacob Zuma, to 15 months in jail for contempt of court. Former U.S. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld has died at age 88. Rumsfeld was a towering and controversial figure across three presidential administrations, most well known for overseeing the second Gulf War. Let's bring you some breaking news now out of Ethiopia's Tigray region. A ceasefire between Government forces and rebels has been agreed to in the capital, Makele. It's an end of an era in Amazon, with its founder, Jeff Bezos, set to step down as CEO. The world's richest man is handing over Amazon's reins to Andy Jassy, the head of the company's cloud division. Well, picking up on some of the stories, Eswatini, this is a place that more of our listeners may recognise formerly as Swaziland. People have been taking to the streets in what looks like a popular uprising to demonstrate their opposition to King Maswati III's autocratic rule. It's, of course, one of the last absolute monarchies, and the king's not been seen very much in public. He was recovering from COVID-19 earlier this year. Um, and they've been running battles between protesters and the police, and although it's not quite an Arab Spring, it does look like some kind of spontaneous movement. And this part of the world has had a reputation for big crackdowns on protests and limiting freedom of expression. What do you make of it, Tara? Well, I think it's, um, it's, it's one of those things but that's been brewing for a very long time. It's, an, it's, a political, or it's a political system, I think, that in southern Africa is unsustainable. 
And so you have now seen with COVID-19 and the various economic pressures, this explosion. And the backlash has been very violent. We've actually seen footage uh, from various human rights organisations of of people in military fatigues literally going from house to house and randomly pulling people out and beating them. Nigeria Tara? Yes, and the actual um, the petroleum investment bill that has been in the brewing, it's been in the making now for over a decade, I think some 13 years, has finally been passed by the Nigerian uh, parliament. Um, and you know, while this is extremely welcome news in the in a way, because one hopes that it will unlock some of the investment in the oil sector, which is which is necessary. I mean, Nigeria has. I mean, the the lack of clarity in terms of the investment rules uh, in the oil sector, while this bill was in its gestation. Um, has meant that investment has actually fallen off dramatically in the oil sector, resulting in in a fall from 2 million barrels of oil a day to 1.7. And the figures are not that important, but it's oil production and exports are still Nigeria's main economic activity. While it may unleash some uh, some new investment, the other side of it is that it will take five years further for this uh, bill to be implemented. And that takes us into the middle of the century, in a century where we're transitioning away from the use of fossil fuels. And so is it really worth the fanfare? Mm, Thanks, Tara. Well, I think we need to do a slight gear change now, switching from Nigeria to Zambia, because I think we have to acknowledge the news of the passing of one of the continent's former leaders, Zambia's Kenneth Kaunda, who's died at the age of 97. Uh, Fondly known as KK, he was credited with building Zambia's education system when he became its first post-independence leader in 1964. But also significantly, and this is really, really, really pertinent, he stepped down from power when the people voted him out of office. We're talking about him because both you and I have got very personal memories of him. Um, He was one of the reasons, Tara, I went into journalism. Um, As a young child, I went with a foreign correspondent friend of the family to the Trooping of the Colour in London. And Kenneth Kaunda was one of the Commonwealth heads of state who was gathered there. And we were in the press box. um, And I was a precocious little eight-year-old. I had my photograph taken with him. And I've tried to follow his career ever since. And I saw him again in 2008 when he came as part of the team of elders to try to broker peace after the post-election violence in Kenya. Um, he was famous for his for his white handkerchief, as well as his political heritage. But Tara, you grew up in Zambia and you also have particularly strong memories of KK. Yes, I, I remember him as he was the first president I ever remember. And I was at school in Zambia and I, I, the song that we were taught at school was a song that he wrote. And I remember being taught to march uh, in a very Soviet bloc manner for, to celebrate the Zambia's 10th independence cele- celebrations at which we were meant to march and then sing uh, the song which was Tiende Pamodzi. And I also remember the two sittings at, of the school that he introduced uh, which was to accelerate and include uh, education for all. And I think I was on a seven to one o'clock uh, shift. 
Uh, and then there was a shift that began at two until five or six. I mean, for me, he was a great president, very forward thinking, you know, he guided Zambia through its very, a very difficult transition to independence, fortunately without any conflict. But then he took the country through its immediate post-colonial environment, which was equally volatile and difficult. And most of its neighbours were at war fighting for their independence. That was Zambia, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Angola, Mozambique by their modern names. You know, Zambia was open for all of the, the guerrilla groups that were fighting in southern Africa made their homes in Zambia. And all of those wars were basically prosecuted and financed from Zambia. It was a big sacrifice for Zambia to actually support all of those liberation movements in the rest of uh, and I, the rest of the continent, the subcontinent. And I don't think it is that that remembered. It meant that Kaunda had to really navigate a tightrope in international di- diplomacy as well, which he did extremely well. You know, the, these were these were Cold War wars. Um, and you remember Tito's presence, I think, at that yeah. uh, at that yeah. Commonwealth uh, right. Day. You know, there were lots and lots of uh, of Yugoslavia was a very prominent uh, partner to Zambia during those days because it was the most moderate of the Soviet bloc countries, uh, and and at the same time. You know, Zambia and Kenneth Kaunda maintained a strong central role in the Commonwealth, maintaining links with the traditional avenues into the West. So, you know, economically, Zambia was a disaster. Uh, Kaunda nationalised all the mines, and that really led to the economic crisis that, in the end, led to him being voted out of power. Uh, but as you said, he did the great thing and he stepped down. In his latter years, he was seen as, as a peacemaker. He was one of the elders um, and he did uh, find himself in a position as, as being an envoy to try and help uh, deal with crises around the continent. And what I also remember him for is always, as you mentioned, sartorially elegant and his love of music and particularly this song. <laughs> So, yes, some important tributes made to the late Kenneth Calder, but this song really does embody his sense of being a man of the people. You're listening to The Ark Insider with Karen Allen and my colleague Tara O'Connor. Now, our guest this week is a South African political scientist, a commentator whose brother was South Africa's second president after the dawn of democracy, but whose family connection he rarely refers to, and he's not let it tame his outspokenness when he's felt at times that his brother was on the wrong path. He heads up South Africa's Institute for International Affairs, and he has a wide range of business interests, including in the media industry. I'm talking, of course, about Maletsi Mbeki. Maletsi, welcome to The Ark Insider. Oh, it's wonderful to be on your show. Really nice to have you here. And I know you know both Tara and myself through various different channels. So really lovely to welcome you on. And we always learn something with every conversation that we have. Welcome, Maletsi. Thanks, Tara. Good to see you. Now, as we mentioned in our news belt earlier in the podcast, there have been some big developments in recent days with the news that the Constitutional Court has convicted former President Jacob Zuma of being in contempt of court and they've sentenced him to 15 months in jail. 
Now, I know you don't want to talk about the details of that court case, but I wonder if we can use it perhaps as a springboard from which to discuss some of the wider challenges facing South Africa, in particular with respect to governance. Um, Manessi, are we seeing some sort of indication about the restoration of the rule of law, a type of correction, if you like, after the Zuma years? Um, because there are, of course, other figures in the ruling party, the ANC, who are being held to account now. An obvious case which springs to mind is the suspension of the senior ANC figure Ace Magashule from the party that's pending a court case, a corruption case. Can Cyril Ramaphosa continue on that trajectory or do you think that um, really COVID-19 has stymied his ambitions to try and reinstitute uh, South Africa, which respects the rule of law? Well, I, I think the problem we have here is, is uh, that the ANC is not able to cope as the ruler of South Africa, if, if I can call it that. It's not a problem about South Africa. It's not a problem about rule of law. It's a problem about the crisis within the ANC. When it came to power, it told the people of South Africa that it is going to solve their problems. The ANC has failed to solve their problems. So they are now fighting amongst themselves. But the South African political climate, just for people who are less familiar with the intricacies of the policy of the, of the politics here, ANC, 57% of the vote. Um, the opposition is extremely weak. The Democratic Alliance, about 20%. Uh, it feels like a one-party state in many, many respects still, doesn't it? And I think people don't necessarily grasp that if they've not visited South Africa. Yes, the ANC thought being a one-party state was an advantage. But, but in, in a relatively more complex capitalist society like South Africa, it actually is a disadvantage to the heads. The ANC needs a strong opposition because now the opposition starts to become from inside the ANC itself. And that's what you are seeing in South Africa is the ANC, not just opposition within the ANC, they go to the extent of killing each other. The ANC, as you point out, is a big party. It has a very big constituency, but it has a very varied constituency, which was had a common interest to fight apartheid. But now they are fighting amongst themselves because they no longer have a common enemy. In a recent speech, uh, you talked about how South Africa is burdened by, burdened by its past. It's not just the apartheid era past, but with it's stuck. Um, you know, for 110 years in a, a sort of a repetition of a nationalism uh, that has dominated the political scene. Africana nationalism in its response to British colonialism and now African nationalism. And in a way, it's stuck in aspic. Is it ever going to be able to break free of this cycle? Well, we've, we've had our two... You are right that, you know, since the British left... Uh, South Africa in 1910 and stopped political control and handed power to South Africans. We have been ruled by, by two nationalist parties, the National Party and the ANC. Uh, that's what has happened. Now, at least one of them has now disappeared, which is the National Party. Uh, so hopefully one day we will see the other one disappearing and then we will get on with business. You see, nationalism is about grievance and it's about the past. The nationalists are not nation builders. This is the irony of it. You, they say that they want to advance the people, but in reality, 
They are more concerned about indulging their grievances, uh, which is what uh, happened to the National Party, which is what happened to, to which is what is happening to the ANC. What the corruption that you see in the ANC, if I can mention that, is more to do with addressing their low consumption in the past. So they want to consume as much as the white middle class and the white elite uh, because then they feel that their grievance of being oppressed in the past will have been uh, will be addressed. But in the in the process of doing that, that they are burdening the economy with a huge amount of debt. And then, of course, some of them feel that they have to cut corners and help themselves to the national treasure uh, in order to to arrive at being at the consumption level of the white middle class and of the white elite. So that those are yes, yes. So the nationalism was good to get us independence and to get us democracy, but it is now a huge liability now. How do we escape from this? Uh, the the ANC obviously is not going to allow the country to walk away from nationalism because it fears if we walk away as a society from nationalism, then we don't need the ANC. There's almost like a perverse incentive, isn't there, on the ANC to try and keep people down, to start and not um, develop a growing middle class, if you like, because that would presumably usher in uh, class-based politics, economics-based politics, issues-based politics. It's a really perverse incentive because we've got, you know, grindingly high levels of unemployment here. And yet sort of the ANC that potentially should be addressing that really has very little incentive to do so because it will lose its power base if it does that, surely. Absolutely. The, you've got to put your finger on it. If you look at who votes for the ANC, at least 40% of the people who vote for the ANC are receive social welfare grants and another 30% are unemployed. So it's, it has no incentives to develop the, 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 the society, which is partly why South African economy has stagnated. So yes, they, that is one of our crises with nationalism, where it's, it's creating a it, it has a vested interest in a stagnating economy and a not developing economy. And I mean, a very striking statistic that, that you presented in your speech was uh, the level of uh, the amount of GDP that is spent in the state sector is the highest in the world, I think. It is to, to pay the, the public service, which are the ANC members. They pay themselves phenomenal salaries. A few weeks ago, I was talking to the ambassador of Germany about a joint project between uh, the German government and the South African government. They are trying to address the issue of uh, training, of vocational training. And, and so the South African government proposed a name for the coordinator of this project and, and a salary. What would be the normal salary of this coordinator? The German ambassador said this guy earns more money than a civil servant in Germany. You know, the South African president earns more money than Angela Merkel of Germany or, 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 or Boris Johnson in London. Now, these countries have economies many times the size of the South African economy. 
but the president of South Africa is paid more than they, their presidents and prime ministers. That just gives you a concrete That's idea. That's something, yeah. isn't it? And yet, Maletsi, you, you talk about sort of the collapse of the South African state, if you like, in a very jovial sort of way, um, makes it feel a lot less depressing than it potentially could be. I mean, you're, you're still here. Uh, you have investments here. You clearly feel a strong sense of connection still with South Africa. When so many people are fleeing for the exits, what keeps you going and what keeps you positive? And is there a sense that things can turn around? Yes, the picture sounds depressing, but... You know, my family has been involved in the struggle for South Africa going back to the middle of the 19th century. And it has changed. Their effort has brought about change. My father was in prison in Robben Island for over 25 years, but he came out and we had the democracy that he was fighting for. So it shows that if you make an effort and you fight for change, you get the result. That's why South Africans are actually not most, certainly black South Africans. They are not that pessimistic about the future of South Africa. The whites are because they never fought against the past wrongs. Once they, they hit a bump on the road, panic, and off they go to Australia, England, wherever. <laughs> but for, for the Africans, we've seen lots, lots of deep potholes on the road and we have overcome those potholes and kept moving. So that's really my view, is that we now have a, 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 a situation with the ANC, which was, which did a good job in, in helping the liberation of, of South Africa from apartheid and all those things. But, but now it's becoming a liability. So we have to look again and say, how do we move forward? Can I ask you, though, you know, just in terms of day-to-day -day living, I know you've raised concerns recently, um, sort of when we talk about sort of governance more broadly, about sort of challenges to the rule of law. And, and South Africa, unfortunately, does still have a reputation of being a, a very violent place. But, of course, you know, the headlines are largely dominated by sort of violence against the middle class and the wealthy. But actually the reality is that there is a lot of mob justice in some of the shanty towns and, and one not far from, from where you stay. Um, on the edge of Johannesburg, I think five members of the community were killed by their neighbours. Has it always been like that or is that something that you're beginning to observe is becoming more of a pattern and, and that surely doesn't bode well? Well, it definitely doesn't bode well. We, we have the highest violent death rate in South Africa for a country that's not at war. We have 55 murders a day in South Africa. In England and Wales, there were, I checked this, last year there were 635 murders for the whole year. So South Africa is a hugely stressed society. Maletti, and that's, you know, that's, is a, is a description of a society in great pain. A m number of years ago, I was an investment mission uh, to Angola, Mozambique and South Africa. And a young Ghanaian entrepreneur who was on the mission said to me that South Africa would really have to understand pain before it could recover and take its place in the post-independence world of African business. And I know that 
that you have views on that and that actually the comparison is not with the rest of Africa. South Africa's post-independence experience is different to that of the rest of the continent. But what you describe with those 50 murders a day is a society still in great pain. Absolutely. You see, the Ghanaian doesn't know this. What what the Ghanaian entrepreneur will see is our five-star hotels that are as good as any you'll find in New York or London or Beijing. So that's what he sees. So he thinks now, and he sees our highways driving from the airport. You have multi-lane highways, you know, and all those things, driving to Santon. And, and so he said, now what's wrong with these people? Why are they always complaining? But there's another part of South Africa which is the bigger part of South Africa, which he doesn't know, which he doesn't see, like the part of 55 murders a day. Uh, he doesn't know that, that part. So people don't understand the real pain that South Africa has gone through and continues to go through because when they, when, when they come to South Africa, they come to the South Africa or of the successful private sector. We have a a big private sector. We have a a big successful private sector where it is successful. That's the part they see. But but this is founded on a lot of pain. I think we have the largest mining industry in Africa. People don't understand what the mining industry, what migrant labor has done to South Africa. The reason we have such huge infectious diseases in our population like TB, HIV, whatever you, is because of the migrant labor system on which these glitzy places like Santon, which they visit, are built on. But can I ask you something on that? Because there, there will be some people that would challenge that sort of idea of the, the starstruck Ghanaian who sees Santon and who sees, you know, the glitzy bits of South Africa. Because, you know, on the podcast, Tara and I speak to Nigerians, we speak to Ghanaians who basically say, look, you know, whilst South Africa's busy sorting out, sorting itself out uh, and sorting out its, its social problems and sorting out its trade union issues and sorting out unemployment, we're powering ahead and we're putting education first and we're uh, developing technology hubs and we're powering ahead. We don't necessarily get the same recognition because we don't have the same voice internationally as South Africa has. And what's always striking is when something happens in South Africa, it will gain much more international attention than something that happens in Ghana or Kenya. And I just wonder, do you think that sense of um, South African exceptionalism, if you like, is beginning to um, take its toll on the rest of the continent that are busy sorting themselves out and that are also wanting to be sort of leaders in the economy? Well, well, you know, they're not powering ahead on their own. Nigeria, I I tried to do business in Nigeria many years ago. Uh, It it would take me a whole day to make a phone call. Then a South African company called MTN went to Nigeria. And today I can pick up a telephone and phone Nigeria thanks to MTN. So, so South Africa is part of their powering ahead. Our financial companies like the Standard Bank, they are part of the development of the banking system in Kenya. And, and they are bringing their very sophisticated banking systems, uh, uh, ways of banking, which the Kenyans didn't have before. 
so, so South Africa is part of that of that powering ahead of of countries like Kenya and countries like 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 Nigeria. They 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 don't see it or choose not to see it. True, I mean I think uh, following on from that, uh, again part of the uh, of South Africa sitting in aspect is. Yes, I get that. I see that. Um, and I've seen that in my career is just how South African companies have powered into the rest of the continent and have been very much part of the uh, development story. But back home, the, the, uh, the sort of 110 year history that you spoke of is actually the structure of the economy in South Africa has not changed at all. It's still very big companies that continue to buy out smaller companies and very little movement within the entrepreneurial world. And there isn't the foundation for that in South Africa amongst young black entrepreneurs yet. Again, I think the, the picture is a bit more complex than, than that. So... As we we pointed out, nationalists in South Africa, whether Africana nationalists or African nationalists, have been obstacles to the broad development of education to the broad society of South Africa. And so has the big mining companies. They have also been obstacles because they want cheap, uh, unskilled labor and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the development of South African infrastructure, which is massive, has depended on unskilled labor. And so, and so we, we have all, all those kind of bottlenecks. So people are right that we, we, we have the, the bottleneck. But, but also our society is very different. Nigerians, the majority of Nigerians are peasants. We have no peasants in South Africa. Everybody in South Africa depends on commercial uh, income. That is not a, that is and uh, they are almost they are, they are workers. Everybody is almost a worker. So, a, so a peasant society has more entrepreneurs because the peasant is a business person. You know they manage the family farm, so they already have those skills. So people talk about South Africa, what is happening in South Africa, and what's happening in Kenya and Nigeria and compare, the two are not comparable. But at another layer of South, of South Africa, you, 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 we, South Africa is way ahead of, of, of Kenya and Nigeria and all. You know, Kenya, Nigeria, what, 90% of its exports is oil. We export cars made in South Africa to Germany and to the United States and to England. So, so the comparison between those two countries, one has to actually understand the differences be, between. So one has to look at the, the parts that are common and the parts that are not common. Where should South Africa be comparing its progress economically and what should well, be done? Well, where South Africa is part of what, in a way, a big part of South Africa is part of what, what used to be called the New World, which were the countries which were established after Columbus uh, voyages, which were in the Americas. But in Africa, South Africa was uh, on mainland Africa. 
was part of those New World. Now, New World countries were characterized by two things. Export of population from Europe to, to, to the New World and export of an enslaved population from Africa to the New World. South Africa has both these characteristics. We had an export of uh, Dutch East India Company and British and whatever you to South Africa. And we had also an import of an enslaved population from other African countries as well as from Asia, from India, from uh, Java, from uh, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, who were enslaved population who were brought in, into South Africa. None of this happened in other African countries. In other African countries, yes, in West Africa, you had the export of population, but you didn't have an import of, of European population. In Even the, the, the export of people to slavery, it was the Africans themselves who exported them to slavery. That diversity should be a huge asset, those connections. I mean, those are historic connections. Some of them are bound up in... in painful experiences, but do you think that South Africa is going to be in future more outward looking and be able to capitalise on some of those connections? I mean, it's part of the BRICS groups of a group of countries. It has obviously strong connections with countries like Brazil and, and, and with India. Do you, do you think that we are going to see in the next five or six years um, a more outward looking South Africa? Or do you think because of the internal challenges, the structural challenges, um, that South Africa sometimes gets ac accused of being quite parochial, quite focused on the internal domestic problems? Do you think those are going to dominate? Well, I think as long as we have the nationalist dominance in our politics, those are going to dominate. Uh, but once we we get over that phase, which we will get over that phase, and, and get more towards class politics, towards how long? All those... How long, Maletsi? How long will it take? Do you uh, think? Uh, our... Well, I don't think it will take us that long. Myself, the ANC is at war with itself, and they are the last nationalist party in South Africa. Uh, they are the likes of the economic freedom fighters who think they can be a replacement nationalism, but they, they are fooling themselves. They can't, even the voters uh, don't give them, the, the voters can see through them that these people are not a solution to our problem. So South Africa is moving more and more towards class politics. Uh, yes, it, it, it will take five, 10 years maybe. But remember, the, the, the nationalists, the African nationalists of the ANC, in the last local government election five years ago, they lost the majority support from the urban population. So you can see already the population in the metros is, is the core of the black working class. And they don't vote for the ANC. They are looking for alternatives. Now, all of the guests that we have, Maletsu, we always ask this question about... And sadly, South Africa's gone back into a circuit breaker lockdown. But we've all learnt stuff uh, about ourselves or we've all uh, tried to learn to do new things. Um, and I was wondering what COVID-19 has taught you or, um, or what have you learnt about yourself? One of the things which I, I have done during 
is really to look into the impact of into slavery in South Africa. I found on my bookshelf at home uh, some books on slavery, both in South Africa and slavery in the New World in general. And that to me is is what I've used my lockdown for is is, is to go to understand, for example, the comparison between the United States and South Africa. What was our common experience? We were both British colonies. Uh, we both had uh, slavery. We both had to get become independent from Britain. We both had an, an inherited economy which the British left us with. And I had to learn about how the Americans overcame that in order to become an industrial country. But it took the Americans 90 years from when they were independent to when they got rid of, of the slave economy that Britain left behind for them. Now, we have been, the British have left since 1910, so we're 111 years since, but we still have the economy, which is the core mining and agricultural economy that they left us. So at least in my case, the lockdown made me have to try and understand. So all it remains is really for me to say thank you very much, Maletsi. It's very kind of you to come on our podcast and we will invite you back once your musings about slavery have made their way <laughs> okay, into Okay, I place. hope so. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your programme. Really nice to have you here, Maletsi. Thanks very much indeed. Okay, thanks. Cheers, thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces country risk reports covering 22 African countries. You can find out about subscribing to these at info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now. <laughs>